Welcome to the Passel CMA series podcast, where we discuss all things marketing and business development. My name is Willie, and today, very interesting topic um, that's slightly out there compared to the normal subjects. We're going to be talking about what it takes to become a marketing and business development consultant. Um, for any seasoned marketing and BD professionals, it can be really tempting to make the move into the world of consulting and set up as a sole trader. While there are huge rewards to be reaped, there are also many factors to consider before you take the plunge. Um, today, great pleasure uh, sitting down with someone who's successfully made that leap. Um, we welcome Susie Pugsley to the CMO Series podcast, and she's going to join us today and share some highs, some lows um, about what it actually takes to become a successful marketing and BD consultant in the professional services industry. So welcome and hi, Susie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Finally got you on. I know, especially at this sort of time of year, some people will have had that sort of thought over Christmas. What shall I do? Is it time to move on? Should I go out on my own? So firstly, can you tell us a bit about your career journey and how you've come to be in terms of your marketing and, and BD consultancy? I've been doing this for a while now. I didn't, I began my career um, in the charity sector. So I was working in agency side um, and I moved quickly to in-house because I much preferred it, <laughs> preferred very much giving the brief rather than having to fulfill it in many ways. Um, so once I'd established, I like I preferred to be in house back in my early career because it was easier to learn and uh, network again and and make connections. Um, through incarnations of going from there and into the military and then into the technology sector, um, and that I was there in the dot com bubble, so you know companies were going bust left, right, and centre. So you had to be quick moving. You were never in a job for very long because the company often wasn't there for very long. Um, I got sick of that and I moved into the legal sector in the early 2000s and for stability really and also to bring to it it was a new area where there wasn't a lot of marketing in BD already it was, it was a, a nascent um, thing the BD and marketing and professional services at that point so I brought my sort of technology background and my social background to it um, and I loved it and I found that I had a wide knowledge and I have throughout my career done many different roles from marketing, PR, you know, design, now we call it digital in those days, it was e-media, um, into um, brand communication, et cetera, and, um, and rebrands and ended up ended up in the BD end of the market. So really focusing on that business development, CRM, CRM became my life mantra um, when I was in various law firms. And someone said to me, well, into my career why why don't you be a consultant and I said oh no I, I much prefer being in-house and I know where I am and then I looked back at my career and went well actually I, I haven't been anywhere for a large amount of time I seem to be heavily project-based so why not go and do this on a consulting basis rather than do it in-house but when I had that thought um I just started at an American firm which I absolutely loved working at Morgan Lewis and Bocchius but I did know that if I was ever going to go out on my own, I probably at some point I was getting married at the time. I was likely to be having children. I needed to have a portfolio of, of a career that was would resonate with some perhaps smaller firms. I didn't think I would be targeting huge firms. So I moved consciously 
setting up my plan, I moved consciously to a smaller firm so I could have more high street credentials, sort of less corporate finance and more um, legal services that would resonate across a wider area. And from there, after I had my first child, I went, right, I'm going to take the plunge and go out on my own because I thought that would give me the flexibility that I was looking for to be able to set my own timetable, set my own agenda and, and be able to work around, um, you know, my new, my new situation of a family life. Um, yes, that was a slightly pipe dream <laughs> but, um, because I hadn't quite, I don't underestimated, you know, the, the amount of stuff you have to do and the, you know, the pipeline and try and do all that with a 10 month old baby was, was perhaps slightly naive. But, you know, you, you pick yourself up, you work at it uh, and you carry on. And I think um, for me, it's much more exciting to be on that project side or, or you know, be able to come in and, and give that outside view than be enmeshed in the internal politics and have been there a long time. And you're doing a great job. And many people who work in house do a fantastic job. But sometimes you need a fresh pair of eyes on it. And that's the bit that excites me is being able to to look at a situation with that external clarity and maybe offer some guidance around how to tweak that process or, or re-engineer it. Is that, so it sounds like sort of timing is key. Um, you've also got to sort of take that plunge. And I suppose that leads me on to the next question, which sometimes, you know, the best laid plans can, can look good, um, but there are obviously challenges that come with that. Um, what, what were the main ones that you sort of faced when you set up outside of juggling with childcare? Mm -hmm. uh, it's the challenges are you go from having an entire support network around you internally, you know, someone who will provide your IT equipment, support your IT problems. You know, you have a finance department who deals with your pay and your, you know, everything that you, you need in terms of your financial side. You have HR, you have um, multiple layers of support in-house that you don't have on, when you're out on your own, obviously. Um, and you have to become all of those things to yourself. Um, you know, my advice is I found I needed to find a, a, a good accountant to support me who understood. And it took several incarnations to find the right fit um, because you really need an accountant that understands where you are and what your aspirations are and how you want to structure your finances and how you want to manage it. And most Professional services firms won't hire a self-employed person because of IR35 and other things. So you need to be a limited company. And you you know, once you get hit a certain point, you're going to be that registered. There's a lot of logistics you need to be uh, dealing with. The other side of it being, you know, when your IT equipment breaks down or if your Teams doesn't work or if your printer's not working, you know, it's down to you to fix it. There's no little person on the end of the phone who's going to come and help you. So again, it took me a long time to find the right IT support that I can rely on um, but a lot of it you have to do yourself it's the same with your billing department you know you send your bills out people don't pay them <laughs> how long are you going to take to chase them and all these things take time and I think it gives you a much greater appreciation really of the, the lawyers and accountants and other professionals that we support in our roles because suddenly you realize you know there's a lot of time taken away from what you're trying to deliver as your actual job is taken away on admin that um you don't really want to be doing so it's surrounding yourself with the right people it's everything from your website to your um you know your own promotion of your own um pr and marketing for yourself 
as opposed to what you're trying to achieve for your clients. So and so the challenges really are, you know, time and, and product and and understanding, you know, how you're going to deliver all of those things. And that's aside from things like, you know, and whilst I'm doing all this, who's going to be looking after my children? And um, if my clients don't pay the bills, how am I going to support myself? So it's, you know, there are challenges around logistics, I think, are the, the, the startup issues. And also, if it's the right time, I mean, is it, have you really assessed who your um, audience are and, and who is going to be um, your main clients and, and pipeline of work? I think when I first started out, I thought because I knew lots of lawyers, I'd get lots of work from law firms but the lawyers don't have the gift of the work you know it's it's the business development director or you know the manager or the the person that's in charge of that particular area is the one that you need to be targeting whilst it's lovely to have lots of recommendations from lawyers you've worked with and make sure you have those as testimonials and you know that body of evidence of what you've done they're not the people that are going to instruct you so you've got to recalibrate and you know, understanding where you sit in the food chain, where your price point is, all those things. So they're quite interesting challenges to to address. Yeah, and you touched upon it. You're, and you've got to practice what you preach. If you're on the BD side, you, you have to do it yourself as well, don't you? So you have to keep that, as, as you mentioned, the pipeline going. Where's the next bit of work going to come from? Yeah. Uh, that They're the challenges. But I imagine it's also been, you know, hugely enlightening as well uh, and interesting in terms of setting up what, what were the main comparisons with you going solo compared to when you were in-house would you say i think the the most freeing part of becoming a consultant is that you're no longer sort of entrenched um in the the, the politics of the firm and every firm has politics and every firm has a culture and whether they're good, bad or indifferent. But, you know, you can free yourself from that and just focus on the issue that you've been brought in to look at or the project you've been brought in to work on. Uh, and that I find very liberating as a very positive side of it. And also it's a finite, particularly some of the training and the coaching and the mentoring. You know, it's very rewarding to see them grow. Um and you can really focus on that whilst at the same time not trying to manage your day job in, in you know, whether you're a marketing manager or a BD manager or a director in a firm, you know, but you don't have the time to devote to them as a consultant. You can really focus in on the people you're mentoring or training um, and, and see how they grow. Um, and, you know, it's a discreet piece of work at training. I love running training courses because off the back of that, you get to meet lots and lots of people, which, as I've already said, is one of my favorite things. So I have a lot of new LinkedIn contacts, new uh, networks to talk to. And that that grows your pipeline from that because, you know, I enjoy it. Hopefully from the feedback forms that I get, they enjoy my training and therefore I get recommendations and I get contacts from all over the place. So it's that's that's a real um, boost to your confidence and, and enjoyment of what you're doing, that you feel people are, what you're saying is resonating with the people you're talking to. In terms of, um, you, you mentioned it before uh, briefly. When you when you start out, how do you even go about sort of setting a price structure? And after that, you know, once you've got got a bit of work, how do you how do you really justify your value uh, when delivering it? One of the first questions I have a lot of people approach me regularly to ask about: should they go out on their own and set up, and how much should they charge? And 
you know, it really is, you, you have to do your, your research as to, you know, and if you've been in-house, you tend to know how much people charge because you've hired consultants yourself um, and you look at why they, they feel they can justify the, the price that they're charging you or or you can, you know, negotiate them down. My view has always been that I price the job according to, you know, one, it's actually my mentor said to me, when I once was saying, well, I haven't, you know, have I done enough hours to justify this bill? And they were like, well, they're not, they're not a lawyer. They're not actually paying you by the hour. They're paying you for your expertise, your knowledge, your experience, you know, the speed with which you can hit the ground running on this project. You know, all those things are wrapped up in it. Or in some of my projects, it's more about they wanted uh, my little black book of lawyers, really. It was a firm of accountants who wanted me to introduce them to a lot of people. So it wasn't anything about what I knew. It was all about who I knew. So you look at the pricing, and I've always viewed it as, do I, do I want to do this? Because that tends to inform it. Um, and what is my what are my overheads that I need to cover? And then what do I feel I need on top of that? Now, I'm very lucky in that I'm not on my own and, and I have other support, a financial support at home, so I can be a bit more flexible. But if you are alone, um, and that is what I say to people, is you need to figure out what what price you can afford to work for because you, you can't work for nothing. You don't want to be paying them because once you get that registered and once you become you know more successful you are, you need to make sure that your profit margin, and always it's not about the price, it's about the profit. Is it the correct amount of profit for what you're doing? And are you bringing value to them? Uh, and can you demonstrate that? Uh, I know some people who charge a huge amount more than me and always say I'm you know undercutting them, but at the same time, I know people who charge a lot less than me, um, but they're comfortable that that is the amount they, they are happy to charge. So it really is how long is a piece of string as to how you're going to price it. But whenever you're, when I, whether I am pricing up a job and providing a, a um, proposal, I also check in the factor of, you know, what's their ability to pay? Because if they're a small firm and they're struggling, I'm not going to charge them city rates. Um, but you will find that huge firms want to pay a lot less than mid-sized and small firms who bizarrely are happy to pay more. I know it well, Susie. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, and I suppose that there is that fine line when you're starting out of, you know, not giving too much away for, not for free, but, you know, valuable advice um, just to get your, your name out there. Because I suppose once you get more settled into the role, then that's when when the pricing structure, you, you, you feel like you can stick to it and trust it a bit more. Um, when it comes to, and we often hear this, we've talked about, spoken about this before, you and I, Susie, but when it comes to sort of marketing and business development, it seems, especially in the legal space, um, sometimes it's shoehorned in. Um, some of the bigger firms, they do have the luxury of being able to split it out and they have a, uh, a CMO, then a, a CMBDO sometimes, or CBDO, whatever you want to call it. Um, do, do you feel there's there's more appetite, especially as you you're leaning to that side on on the business development side, or or do you think you know they should go very much hand in hand? You, you definitely cannot have one without the other. Uh, I think the reason um, it is, I mean, in many ways, it, it's sales and marketing. But as we know, in the legal space in particular, the word sales has been a dirty word for many years. So what essentially is a sales and marketing function becomes marketing and BD and intrinsically lawyers view business development in a positive sense because they view it as something that's building 
business and therefore commercially bringing in money. Whereas they view, you know, rightly or wrongly, many of them view marketing as, you know, the cushions and colouring in department where we're just making nice websites and brochures and it's spend money rather than make money, which, as we both know, is is misnomer. Um, but the fact is that there's there's that sort of mental adjustment to make to understand that, you know, and I think a lot of people try and transition. They start out with marketing. We have to start out with marketing because you've got to have your profile. You've got to have your brand. You've got to set your stall out. And then once the work starts to flow in, you've got to really focus on that business development um, aspect. But it is a tendency where if they're not fully aware of the differing idea of Venn diagram, which I always give to new clients who are trying to say to me, well, what's the difference between BD and marketing anyway? Um, and I go and don't forget communication because that's also a very key part. Where does it live? And, you know, people not understanding where CRM lives because does that live in BD? Does it live in marketing? Does it live in marketing and communications? You know, where does all these aspects sit? And, and many firms astound me even now after, you know, 20 plus years of doing this will still come to me and go, I don't, could you really explain to me what all these different people in a BD marketing team do? And I'm like, well... It's just the same as you've got employment lawyers, corporate lawyers, you know, dispute resolution lawyers. They're not, they're all lawyers, but they're not all doing the same thing. Same with us. You know, this is what a PR person does. This is what a BD person does. But obviously, in the more sophisticated, and it's where the firm is on their maturity curve as to whether they really get um, those nuances and what you're trying to achieve and what they need to do first. And no firm is the same because they're all at a different point. And that doesn't tend to, I find, relate to size. You know, I've known huge firms, no idea what they were doing, tiny firms who were completely on it and had, you know, all the, the aspects of their marketing and the DBD um, really working very well. So it's it's about getting under the head of those firms and going, you know, what is it that you want to achieve? And then we'll tell you whether it's a marketing play first or it's a BD place. It's, you know, it's two together um, because it would be different. I've gone to firms where, We've not needed a bid team at all because they didn't do any bids, you know. So it's all a handshake and a coffee. So it's much more of a marketing and BD play. Um, and other firms where, you know, it's all about the RFPs. It's all about formal bids and formal pitches. And marketing's more than let's just make it look nice. We don't need much brand stuff going on here. We've already got it. So, you know, they. I personally feel they're absolutely equally vital but it's the explanation of how important each part is at which point in the evolution of the firm that is that is key to explain. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, it sounds like education is definitely necessary for partners, but we, we often find as well that, to your point, it doesn't really matter on the size of the firm. It just matters if they if they're switched onto it. Um, we, we sometimes find BD boards, you know, in... Um, mm in practice in, in some of the firms that we work with, whereas others have never heard of it or even considered having a route in from a marketer or BD perspective to a partner. Yeah, um, one of the best firms I've worked out actually have a dedicated marketing and business development partner per yeah. department whose job is to spearhead it and funnel it and, you know, really take that as a, as a piece of, you know, work away from the head of department and also to bolster the, the BD and marketing people they've got in their team to give them that, you know, cultural top cover. Uh, and other places, as you say, who just don't don't get it at all. For any of the listeners, which obviously is what this is mainly about, um, thinking about 
setting up on on their own and as you say you've already had a few people sort of come to you recently and sort of say can I do this what what what, what advice would you give I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you if possible to give us three do's and three don'ts for working with law firms uh, yeah. well three do's are definitely do your preparation your prep i didn't <laughs> i wish someone had been around to tell me this and um, so you know just make sure that one there is an appetite for because we're all different whilst we're all marketing business development people in the sector we all have different strengths and different um abilities and our usps is is definitely decide what determine what your usp is because there are a lot of marketing and media consultants in the legal sector and what is going to make you stand out um make sure you have a network a base a solid you know potential customer base that you can tap into and if you don't have it i always advise everyone to go and build that long before you set foot outside the door of in-house do it whilst you have that that comfort blanket and the umbrella of of the place you're working build that network determine find out who would hire you and these are your peers in the market so you need to know who's going to give you some work when you go out on your own um and do you know spend time determining you know what it is you're offering and how much you need to survive um if you're out on your own if you're a single parent or if you're you know in a in a partnership that you can rely on them to financially support you great you've got to figure out when you how long are you going to give it and, and when are you going to to think you're going to you know start to break even and when you're going to and what's your scale-up plan for the future are you i mean when i started out i had whole grand vision of a huge agency i was going to be running uh, and i haven't given up on that dream it's just you sometimes realize that life and family get in the way and that maybe you need to part that for a bit later it's what can you manage and what support network have you got available to you so those are things to do i would say don't don't worry too much about you know there's always imposter syndrome there's always failure don't fear failure because you you can get it wrong a couple of times before you get it right reason not to do it just get out there and give it a go and um you know as long as you've got a plan um i would also say don't ever go into a piece of work without a really strong and solid contract make sure your contract protects you as much as it protects your client because often people don't like to, it's quite expensive to invest in getting a really good contract drawn up so people as consultants will take on board the contract that the client is giving them and if the client is a law firm they will have drawn it up very much in their favor um and it you know it's all fine when you kick off and everyone's happy but if anything were to to change during the course of the project that is you know the thing you need to rely on most to protect you so make sure um you know don't don't skimp on the important things um invest in decent contract decent support for you know, in terms of your tools that you're going to use whether you're going to use a crm small crm tool for yourself whether you're going to use you know invest in things like zero or quickbooks or whatever it is that you want to make your life quicker and easier for billing and there's a uh, I can't remember what it's called, but Simon Marshall always goes on about it, which is this um, uh, pitch tool, which is amazing and writes it all for you and looks fabulous. But you know, look at I don't don't skimp on things that are going to make your life easier because it will it'll pay you ben benefit in you in the long run is what I would say. 
yeah it's a good point on the on the contract side as well uh, and, and especially to cover yourself during unforeseen pandemics for instance when okay. it's you know it is a bit hairy when you're a, um, a sole trader um I know you've given loads of brilliant bits of insight there Susie so thank you for that um we're going to start with a nice um quick fire round so I'm going to start with asking you what is your favorite book and why well that's that's a real tough question because I love books I love reading and I have many many I actually had to cull them recently um so to distill it down I'd say my favorite at the moment um what I'm reading is actually a poetry anthology called Talking to the Wild by Becky Helmsley uh, she writes fabulous uh, poetry about uh with a very strong sort of female theme to them um as a book book it's probably a bit of an oldie now but Elifer, Eleanor Oliphant I can't even say it Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine by Gail Honeyman it's a very good book good recommendations there um on the song front what are you listening to at the moment or in terms of podcasting what, what are you listening to on that side as well um I'm driving my children mad with the fact that I uh, I've lately become quite a huge Miley Cyrus fan um so I Loaded the my recent download was used to be young because it's a song that resonates very strongly with me. Um, all about being used to be wild, but now um I used to be young and and it's a, a slightly different lifestyle that you live now when you're older and you've got uh, children. But uh, so that's the song that is uh, on our kitchen disco soundtrack at the moment. Um, and I'm not a massive podcaster, although um I've been uh, watching a number of TED talks lately, uh, mainly on you know uh, workplace cultures that's probably the most thing I've been watching good stuff Miley Cyrus got a nice sort of heart back to the 80s with her vocals I always find um, yes. are, yeah loving her as well um what is one thing you couldn't live without in your working life um obviously my phone <laughs> definitely uh, and it's many many apps but predominantly LinkedIn is where I I live and I couldn't live without uh, it's, my people live on LinkedIn, I would say, yeah, for a multitude of reasons. A couple of years ago, I did a, a charitable walk, and it was interesting to me that for all the social media platforms that I'm on, it was my LinkedIn community that were the most supportive of things like that. So uh, yes, it's that's the one thing I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to do with myself if I didn't have LinkedIn. <laughs> Great answer. Um, are there any habits that you think have helped you? In your career so far or what are the main ones i think um for me it's very much that i am a i'm a social being i enjoy socializing i enjoy networking i enjoy meeting new people and having new experiences and that um social aspect of of my career when i was in-house when i was younger and then later on as a consultant has really um helped hugely because your network is is your greatest strength and and i would say it's the generosity in that network as well as you know i always say it's good karma if you can pay it forward if you could do someone a favor in your network it will always come back tenfold to you later so um yeah network and and uh getting out there and meeting people is is definitely the number one for me great stuff link so you've got linkedin on the social side uh online and then you and do it personally as well um what's your favorite place to visit and why um, for me, I guess it will always be the Cotswolds, which is um, 
whilst I was born in the north, I moved down to the Cotswolds when I was about five. And uh, it is my my home, um, Gloucestershire in particular, and around sort of the lakes. Um, I always, when I want to uh, relax or unwind, is to go and see family and friends in, in the Cotswolds. That's my go-to place. Beautiful part of the world. Great stuff. Thanks. Thanks for your answers on that, Susie. So if you had one key bit of advice for anyone looking you know, to, to, to go on their own and become a, a marketing and BD consultant or set up a, an agency with the, with those uh, lofty views. Um, mm-hmm. what, what would you, what would you say to them? I would say look to your network and, and really see who you need to know and who you need to build strong relationships with, you know, my relationships with people like yourselves at Passel with, you know, many other, um, contemporary suppliers which when you're in-house you know the the power dynamic is different and when you're out on your own you will find it can be quite lonely you will no longer get invited to any of the events that go on because you're not in-house anymore therefore you are no longer their target market so you need to build those relationships on a personal level if you want to keep that network and that potential pipeline alive so so very much focus on your peers or um, other agencies similar to yourself, selling different products, selling different things, but in the same space, because keeping alive to what's going on in the market and being able to really focus in on that, you know, network. And is that, you know, I I go out and pitch under other people's banners, they come under mine, it depends on what the project is. And so it's, you know, if you if you want to go fast, fine, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. So try and gather a gang around yourself of trusted allies super bit of advice you heard it here first networking networking more networking and get a creative uh, accountant i'm sure um, that's what's helped. um susie thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on thank you very much indeed it's been great this episode of the cmo series is brought to you by passel the content marketing platform for professional services firms Passel puts the power to create genuinely authentic and helpful content in the hands of your professionals and it allows your brand and marketing team to effectively manage, distribute and see the impact of your content. To start showing the market the true knowledge that your firm holds, visit home.passel.net forward slash demo to get a free online demo of the platform.